Yo, 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 what's up, baby? Welcome to another episode of Salinas Underground Podcast. You're looking at Salinas News, events, people, historical events this week. Man, it's going to be an, this is another history one. We'll get that one off right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be an, uh, this is gonna be another history episode. It's just me, me all by myself. Yeah, just me in the studio today. Um, again, these history ones, I tend to either have just sometimes a co-host sometimes not you know if 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 i don't have a guest it's usually just me and man and this i want to say it's a fun one it's a another interesting story as they usually are um but it's really dude this is tragic man this is yeah this is a really tragic story uh in this in this area and I, i mean some people might know it some people might not um so yeah so anyway this is uh, another one of the history episodes, and today we're talking about the the Chular bus crash of 1963. Some of you might be like, oh, damn. Oh, damn. I know stuff about this. Some of you are like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, but again, long story short, on September 7th, 1963, there was a bus full of Bracero workers uh, crossing the train tracks right outside of Chular, if for some reason you're listening to this and you don't know the geography of this area, Chular is eight miles south of Salina, so right outside, right at the edge of town. Um, again, the, this bus was attempting to cross the railroad tracks. The driver did not realize there was a train coming. Train hits bus. Bus and uh, humans go everywhere. Um, 32 people ended up dead, 25 more injured. To this day, to this day, it is the deadliest uh, road accident in American history. It's crazy. I, I, it always trips me out because you, I mean, you would not hope. I mean, thirty-two people dead, thirty-two people dead in a fucking car, basically a car accident. You know what we would call a car accident? Thirty-two people dead. Um, deadliest again in American history. It's a trip when you look that up. It's it's really not even close. I think the next one was like 25 or some 23 something. Anyway, anyway, you're like, okay, well now now you've piqued my interest. That's fucking that's some dark stuff right there. But what's it all about? Um I'm going to hopefully hopefully at the end of this episode you'll have figured out a little bit of what this was all about because this was interesting. This is another man I guess this is the part of the fun of researching this these episodes cuz it's like you know, you just, it's something you you don't expect to find stuff, you know, you, like the, the Guayu rubber project or whatever. I mean, like when they didn't have that much nefarious stuff because it was all World War II stuff, other than it was classified and most of the stuff destroyed at the end of the war. Like, it's so interesting to, you do the research and it just seems, you know, like, like when you either hear about the event or you read about it, it just seems so like black and white, like this happened and this is the aftermath. But then when you actually do the research, you're like, holy crap, like this, this event here is, is again, I, like I, said, I like to tie it into the national narrative. You know, if you've listened to these history episodes before, you know, I like to do that. The, you know, what did that local event mean on the national level? And of course, we're going to get into that as well. And, and it's a. It's a connection that I didn't expect, and it's it's interesting. And again, it, it if you're a Mexican from Salinas, this that I think it'll very much resonate with you. And if you're not a Mexican from Salinas, it's still a very interesting story about this area. So anyway, 
Let's get into this. Let's talk about this. So like I said, I do like to to tie this into the national the national narrative, you know, this local story. So um a little a little, you know, kind of snapshot of where the US was at this point in 1963. Number 1, JF Kennedy was JF Kennedy was present. JF Kennedy? Has anyone ever said it JF Kennedy? Anyway, Kennedy JFK was president still. That that was such a trip. Like once again, you just you see the the history and you see the reels and you're just like, man, that was like a million years ago or whatever. And then you're like, wait a minute. When this went down in 1963 in Chular, John F. Kennedy was president. Uh, Medgar Evers was assassinated in, in Mississippi in June. That's if you know, you know, this is like around the civil rights was kicking off. All this is going to, you know, you'll you'll see this, you know, again, Medgar Evers gets assassinated in June in Mississippi on August 28th, freaking couple weeks before the, the accident, Martin Luther King does the I have a dream speech. You know, we all know. We all know the March on Washington. It ends with, you know, MLK doing the speech. We all, you know, I have a dream. Um, so, yeah, that was two weeks, two weeks before this, before this uh, car, this car crash, this, this bus crash here in um, Chular on the 24th. Of that year, President Kennedy was on November 24th. Kennedy was assassinated. Dude, what, what's up with that? 1963 was, fuck, woof. People getting assassinated left and right, and it's, it's the right assassinating on the left, to be quite honest. But it, and, but you can see that it's, it, you know, the civil rights era is starting. It's kicking off, you know. Uh, you know MLK had just done this, this speech. Kennedy was just assassinated. So everywhere, uh, oppressed people were starting to say, hey, man, we're done being oppressed. We're demanding our civil rights. We They're guaranteed to us in the Constitution, just like everybody else, and we demand them right now. Like the president, Jimmy Carter, say, you know, like, like, like Scarface says when he gets fucking busted when he comes across from Cuba. So anyway, that that's what's going on in the country. You know, this country is getting is this civil rights fever for lack of better term is just taking over the country here here in in salinas in the in the salinas valley ag dominate i mean come on that's a simple one that's an easy one right there ag dominates everything agriculture rules all starting in world war ii i guess i could talk about the what i said program another episode but we won't get into it too much about what the the program itself was and how it worked but needless to say, the Bracero program came about in World War II when there was a lack of unskilled. Basically, like everybody went up a pay grade in a sense during World War II because there's so many good jobs, and a lot of the low low paying jobs were had, were lacking employees. So what the U.S. and Mexico did, they made a deal. Mexico said we will send workers over there. Y'all just make sure to pay them good and treat them right. And the U.S. said, of course, of course, we've never, we've never screwed anybody over. We will never do that. And Mexico said, cool. And then, you know, workers would, would come across legally. They were Mexican nationals, but they would work in the States and they would go back. And, of course, the, the, the Salinas Valley had a ton. We had, you know. Uh, there was a lot of employees after World War II ended, you know, a lot of people started coming back and the growers were like, fuck that, dude. <laughs> like these dudes are hella cheap and they work hella hard. Like we don't need you GIs coming in here and fucking 
trying to change the wages and shit. So the Bracero program kept going uh, into the 60s and it ended for a, a big part, reason why it ended was this um this accident here or this this yeah this crash in Chular. So anyway, let let's get to it. What what the hell? How did it go down? What was it? So here we are. We we're going back in time. It's September 17th, 1963. You know, it's starting to get warm. The valley's windy. We all know that. Uh it's a little after four o'clock, four PM. This this group of guys, fifty-seven dudes, fifty-five man team, and a driver at with the the El Mayordomo and his co mayordomo on the passenger seat. How do you say that in English? Supervisor? Fucking mayordomo, dude. Um, so anyway, 57 dudes, they're they're in this in this bus, dude. And this bus is I have bus in quotes. It, it's it's the, the non-bussiest bus. Basically what they did is you take a regular flatbread truck, still kind of the same like when you're going out in the fields and they're loading the boxes onto the trucks. It's still basically one of those. You take one of those and then they they bolt two benches down long way. You know, not not kind of like the buses are are perpendicular, but these are like parallel to the the long ways of the, you know, so you got two long benches going down the edge and then just put like a little wooden shed around it to make a, a, a you know, protect you from the fog and, and the wind and stuff. So it's like a very, it's it's the most basic stuff. It's like the, the jankiest thing. And you know why? Dude, you know, this is what, again, where it starts to be like, what? So the reason why, and th- I was completely legal. There was nothing wrong with that. They weren't, you know, breaking the law. The growers weren't breaking the law by modifying the flatbeds like that. And the reason why, because at that time in 1963, the federal government considered farm workers a, a quote unquote type of load. So they basically considered them like metal, wood, or hay. And fucking farm workers, fucking nuts. Fucking nuts. Anyway, anyway, so because of that, like, so the bus was, there was nothing wrong legally with the bus the the bus was up to spec because it didn't have any fucking specs because it wasn't carrying human beings it was carrying types of loads um and at 425 th- that's when the, the the bus gets to this this train and it's still there i mean tr- train tracks don't move very often if you if you're ever going down the valley or you're coming up from the valley into salinas you're gonna pass chular we've all you know we've all done it a thousand times uh, actually, at this point right now, you'll see a sign that says Bracero Memorial Highway. And the reason why it's there is because it happened in that area. Anyway, so basically what I'm trying to get at is you can go over this crossing yourself still. Um, so anyway, and, and we, we know how it's just, it's literally the road right there, dude. Like there's no fences, there's nothing. It's road and railroad and people are going like 80 miles an hour. So 425, the bus is coming up to the this railroad crossing. It's an unmarked, unsigned railroad crossing. You just kind of know it's there. Um, it goes, it's going across, and but at the same time that it's trying to go across, a train is coming up to. You're probably going to Spreckles because it was carrying sugar beets. So a train's coming up, carrying sugar beets, and it's blasting the horn. It's like a man, 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 man. You know, you know how trains do. Um, and nothing, but nothing, you know, it's an, the, the bus goes over the train tracks, train hits the bus, fucking chaos, boom, fucking men, wood, metal, 
all over the fucking place, dude. Everywhere. Um, yeah. So immediately, 23 men were, were killed instantly. And, and then nine more would eventually die later on, either on the way to the hospital or or coming back. Or, I mean, on the way to the hospital or at the hospital later on. And, and dude, and this is another one where... Uh, this one, this one was tough. When you're reading the, I, I didn't read. There's a a really, and we'll get into it later. But there's a really good report called "Tragedy in Chular," done by by a gentleman that we'll talk about later, um, that has all the freaking details. And not only could could I not find that book, or it was like eighty freaking bucks, but I didn't really want to read the the details. It was it just seemed so terrible. And again, one of them that just stuck out to me was one of the ambulance drivers when he was like writing his report, whatever, for that day. He was saying that when he went to go clean his ambulance and he opened the back door, that the blood flowed out of it like water. And I was just like, oh, dude. The, I mean, that just goes to show how, how fucking horrifying the, this accident was. The fucking train was going 65 miles an hour. A train going 65 miles an hour hits this truck carrying 57 dudes and... um. Again, Mexican nationals, that's a big thing. They're Mexican nationals. They, they are not American citizens. And, um, yeah, kills 23 of them instantly. Uh, eventually, uh, nine more would die. So 32, man, 32 in total. Um, and, again, it was so bad that originally the, the coroner could only identify 12 of the victims. Only 12 freaking, only 12 people. And... What what this is another and another reason why it was so hard to identify, and bro, this is nineteen sixty three, dude. Nineteen sixty three. I think some listeners that that listen to this were probably born around that time. So this is nineteen sixty three. Part of the reason why they couldn't identify the bodies is because at the time the practice by both the growers and the supervisors was that they own they refer to the braceros only by their worker number. So they didn't know these dudes' names, dude. They didn't know these fucking dudes' names. They just called. They knew them and called them by their numbers. So when they died, they, they didn't, I didn't. I don't know. That's not Osvaldo Lucero. That's thirty-two, forty-three, forty-five. Was it fifty-two? Forty-five, fifty-seven. That's my number. Oh my god! Why can't I get the the, the fucking toots and the maytos? Right now, it belongs with someone else's number. Anyway, so that, dude, that was one of those where I was just like, are you kidding? This is 1963. These these people, these workers are referred to as types of loads so they can just be thrown into the backs of trucks. They they can't be identified because their names are not known. They're just known by their numbers. Eventually, the FBI says, all right, freaking... Little farmers out there in Salinas, we'll, we'll come figure it out. So the, the FBI sends a team down to Salinas, and then they're able to identify everybody else. And um, they use a fingerprint, you know, from when they, they came into the country. Um, but one one thing, this is where, again, more, more of this trickery comes in. So in, in identifying these victims, one thing came out is that one of these dudes was not part of the Barcero program. He was actually here illegally in this country, and that is a big no-no because hiring illegal people is illegal. Hmm. 
So again, this that went to show that the Bracero program wasn't this big perfect program that the the growers were trying to put. I'm not saying that they were saying it was perfect all around, but they were like, no, it's well run. It, we, you know, everything's under control. It's all good, but yet there is one person on this this team. So you're, I mean, that that is illegal. So. The growers are obviously breaking the law, so they're kind of like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, this is – and this is where it's fucked up. At no point in the – and I'm not going to say – I'm not trying to put the growers out as some callous as motherfuckers. Like, like they're just evil and just care about money and not humanity. Like, I, I'm, I'm not – I can't make that judgment. But but in looking back, you know, when you, when on hindsight – like these dudes were way more concerned about the 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 look how this could affect the program and therefore their their like access to cheap labor versus like holy shit thirty two workers just died on the job like nobody not not nobody that was not for the growers that was not the concern and anyway it, that was like that was blowing me uh, blew my mind blew my freaking mind so anyway. That's that's what happened, you know. So there you go. The bus tried to make it across. Um, it it did not. Thirty two men are dead, and so then you know you, now you got to plan thirty two funerals. You got you know you gotta you gotta do something, and so immediately and th- this is dude the sadness like it's already a tragic thing, but as soon as the bodies are available, you know, to be released to do go to a funeral. There is a freaking battle for the bodies. A battle for the bodies. The growers of the Salinas Valley want to do the funeral in Salinas. The Mexican consulate wants to do it in Fresno because they say, and this is their a quote, a direct quote here, that there's a, in Fresno at the time was the only completely Mexican mortuary in Northern California. I don't know what the hell that really means to be honest. I don't know what a completely Mexican mortuary is. They got they got like bandoliers and sombreros everywhere or some shit. Um, I don't, so anyway, the Mexican consulate was like, "Fuck that, dude. We we're, we don't trust you guys. These are Mexican nationals. These are our people. We want them." Oh, maybe that's what it means. Like a completely Mexican, as in Mexican Mexico. Oh, okay. So anyway, yeah. So the Mexican consulate's like, we we want you know. We want to do, you know, we want to handle the bodies ourselves, basically. But the the growers, they again, they realizing the implications this is for the program. If this gets out that they're mistreating their employees, they don't even know their names, that they're hiring illegal workers like the government's going to shut down the Bracero program. And, and that's going to cut, again, a bunch of access to ununion cheap labor. And of course the growers don't want that so eventually the the growers got their way and and the funeral was here in salinas um it was it it was held at at palma <laughs> which is i mean if you think about it, in 2023 it, it it seems so weird and so out of place but uh really at at the time in salinas it's really the gym at Palma was the only place that could handle something because th- this was expected to be a, a rather large event, and um, sure, sure enough, it was. It was nine thousand people showed up for the funeral. Uh, only six thousand fit in the gym, so you had three thousand people outside the gym. 
there at the funeral. Uh, this is one thing that really blew my mind. So this was 1963 again. 1963, the, 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 people that handled the music was the choir from sacred heart church okay so they're doing the music for 32 mexican nationals that were here working that got killed in, in an accident um well sacred heart <laughs> this was 1963 so it was less than 10 years before that sacred heart did not let mexicans into the fucking church I mean, I don't mean to laugh. It's not funny. I'm Mexican. I would not have been allowed. I don't want to be allowed anyway. But, like, it's it's so disingenuous. It's like, oh, yeah, (laughs) 10 years ago, you weren't allowed. You're not allowed to step foot in our church. But now we're doing the music for 32 of of your dead people. I don't know. That one was a little weird to me. That was a little weird to me. Um, but one person was actually missing from that funeral. One person was actually missing, and his name is here because I thought it was fucked up what they did to him. So uh, Antonio Gomez Zamora, his was not a part of the funeral. I mean, his body. He, he was already, you know, he was one of the victims. But anyway, he was just buried in an unnamed Salinas cemetery, no name, nothing. And the reason why is because he was the undocumented worker on the crew and once again the growers did not want it to get out they were they had they were tight i mean they they can it sounds so conspiracy things or whatever but like they controlled the media like the californian back there i mean if it existed it would probably still be on their side but back then it was definitely on their side back then it, it they were just like oh whatever that's sad carry on um so yeah and so it's not like the californian was, was gonna come out and call them out on, on what, what the heck's that all about so yeah antonio gomez zamora he's probably i don't know if he was ever exhumed and taken back uh to mexico but if not he's probably you know his body's still out there in one of these cemeteries in salinas um no no plaque no nothing no memorial for him but i found him out um, so anyway, dude, and one thing, holy crap, this is one. And so I read, uh, I read an article from 2013 called a town full of dead Mexicans. That's basically where most of my research comes from. So if you've read that article, you're probably like, what the fuck? It's not all, all from there, but yeah, a town full of dead Mexicans. Uh, I'll look it up. I'll, I'll tell you later at the end. Uh, what's it? Flores, Lori Flores. I think it might be anyway. Great article, very very well done. Of course, in 2013, so we have the ability to go back in time and and look at things, not only through the you know through the lens of the 2013 perspective, but also you know from more other people you know, has come you know things have come out over the years. But anyway, one of the articles, one of the quotes in the article that just stood out to me that I just had to write down because I was like, I have to share this. This like. I had a freaking uh, existential freaking thought from this, and I, I, I can't get out of my head. But anyway, so this is what the quote said. It said, uh, valued as laboring bodies, mere arms detached from intellect or political will. But Aceros lacked a personhood while working in the, in the United States that, in the case of Chular, they only acquired through death. And 
it was so true. Like it's, when you think about that, they were only numbers and, and they were considered a type of load. It was like you literally they were they were not considered people. They only became people when they died. Like, and it's just like you, you, you think that like usually when you die, that's when your personhood kind of really ends. But for the, these workers, they, they only became people once they died and they died so tragically. Anyway, I'm telling you, I had a fucking existential thought and it's just been going off. <laughs> you can think about it forever or for days about that. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to make this a four hour episode, so let's carry on. So, yeah. So anyway, the the funeral ended up being at Palma. Nine thousand people showed up. And it, it you know, it's a it's a pretty in, in that article. There's a, a picture you see, you know, they set them all the, the bodies all or the coffins all up in a cross. Virgen de Guadalupe right there looking down over everything. And, you know, it, was, it looked like a. In, you don't want to say neat or pretty because it, it was such a sad thing, but yeah, it looked like quite a ceremony. Anyway, anyway, we got to talk. So at this point, somebody's like, well, somebody's got to get in trouble or something, right? Somebody drove a freaking bus across a train track. How the hell did that happen? Who the hell was driving? What happened? What's going on? Is anybody getting in trouble? Um, and, and yeah, yeah, that is exactly what's, what's happening. So the, the driver was, uh, this guy by the name of Pancho Espinosa. Um, he was 32 years old at the time and he was initially arrested and charged with 32 counts of felony manslaughter. And, um, and yeah, so, so this dude again, born in Mexico, immigrated to the U S in 1954, then, you know, quickly found himself in Oxnard started moving up the ranks, you know, in the fields because he held a green card and, you know, so he had papers. He, he was able to move up. That's how he got, you know, became a mayordomo. He also suffered from diabetes, which plays into the story. It sounds weird, but yeah, he had diabetes. And so quickly he was, he was represented by this dude named Robert Ames. And Robert Ames, here we go. And there's another one of them tangents. So Robert Ames himself is quite seems like quite an interesting person because uh, Robert Ames was the first Native American graduate of Stanford Law. That was the first Native American graduate from Stanford Law in 1955. He graduates from Stanford, moves down to Salinas, joins a practice. In 1963, he's he's defending. Uh, Pancho Espinosa here and his 32 counts of felony manslaughter and dude, another Robert Ames actually was still was still a practicing lawyer up until July of last year uh, I, when I was doing my research like his off law offices came up his his law offices were literally across the street from the studio <laughs> I could literally like go right our door I would go to our front door and I would be staring at Robert Ames's law office and it was it was just like holy this is how close you are to this history like this is how close you are and yet like it's 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 almost forgotten sometimes so it's super important that we remember these things um and, and yeah and so anyway that i mean if he just retired it'd be so interesting to to sit with him and and see what he still remembers from that or or who he was or what his story was 
Um, but anyway, Robert Ames was a sharp cat, man. Robert Ames, they didn't just get this job just just because you know they just wanted to give him something. So he was like, he was like, no, nah, dude, it wasn't like it wasn't Espin- it wasn't you know Espinosa's negligence that did this. It just just a bunch of factors came together at that very moment, and it was super unfortunate, and it was basically inevitable. Espinosa could do nothing about it and so he was gonna so he said he was like that day the winds as usual if anyone's been in you know anyone that lives in the valley has been in the valley it's always windy it's always windy so he said the, the winds that day were particularly windy so you could not even if you had perfect hearing you wouldn't be able to hear the train from very far away on top of that, the light poles and the landscape, you know, there's a bit of hills and stuff and, and poles, all of that blocked the view. So you really couldn't see that far down the tracks. And then on top of that, Pancho Espinosa suffered again from, from diabetes and his diabetes kind of, you know, he didn't have any peripheral vision. He basically couldn't see on his edges. So you take all those t- together and, and it, it was just an unfortunate accident. Like it, it, there was no malice. Pancho didn't do anything wrong. Um, and and it, it, it he did, Ames is. It seemed to work very well. It seemed to work very well because um, you know, two hours. It took the jury two hours to deliberate to come back and acquit. Pancho Espinosa, and also I, I forgot to mention this: that at, by this point, it, the charges had been lowered from thirty-two counts of felony manslaughter to thirty-two counts of misdemeanor manslaughter, and that happened. Dude, they did that the day after the funeral. They did that the day after the funeral. So it's just like, you know, if anyone wants to, you know, come out and, and be mad or whatever and be like, yeah, bro, we're charging him. We're 32 counts of felony freaking manslaughter. This dude's probably never going to see the outside of a jail again if anyone were to call him out. And nobody did. But the very next day, you know, once the funeral's done, once, you know, people, you know, because again, these are Mexican nationals. So they're probably, go, you know, taken back home to Mexico and they just lower the charges. They lower the charges, and then on top of that, not only do they lower the charges, it only takes the jury two hours to deliberate and to come back and acquit Pancho Espinosa of of this manslaughter charge. He goes to Mexico and then falls off the face of the earth. Not literally, like it just he just obviously did not want to be messed with anymore. Uh, Pancho, yeah, at that point, he goes to Mexico. He gone. And and it seems like okay, cool. All right, cool. Thank you. It was only a thirty minute episode. You thought I thought it was gonna be longer, but that's not the full that that's what would seem like the full story is, but that's not the full story. And I mean, because some yeah, some of the more inquisitive ones of you are just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Thirty two people got killed on the job, and nobody got punished for it in a sense. Nobody got fined. Nobody got a ticket. Nobody went to jail. Nobody went to prison. Oh shit! Didn't fucking come in and, and change any regulations. No, nothing happened. The Bracero program kept going. Thousands, hundreds, and thousands of of Mexican nationals kept coming up to work in the fields in all over the Southwest. 
um right that's what it, that's what it would seem like but but it really it really it wasn't that and it wasn't that for the most part from this guy the, the i mentioned him earlier the, the guy that wrote tragedy and chular it's a man by the name of ernesto galarza and ernesto galarza is as a name that you know cesar chavez is very well known and ernesto galarza should be as well known it should he should be up there um as somebody that has fought for Mexican-American rights over the years. So anyway, Ernesto Galarza. Let's talk about this dude. Ernesto Galarza is badass. They, they, Ernesto Galarza is, so obviously the, this was a huge, the, the accident itself when it happened, it was national news. It, 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 was, it was huge. It was all, all over the place. I mean, obviously around the country, people didn't understand the politics of, of what it actually meant, what Braceros were. Or whatever, but it was big enough that it attracted the attention of Congress, and so Congress sent Ernesto uh, to Salinas to come investigate, do his own investigation for Congress to make a presentation to them about what happened in Chular. And um, Ernesto was no joke, bro. This guy, this guy. So he was born in Nayarit in 1905. He gets his master's degree at Stanford in 1929. And then he gets his PhD from Columbia. Columbia, son. He went Ivy League with it. He gets his PhD from Columbia in 1947. He's he's one of the first people to organize Mexican workers, you know, to like, hey man, you gotta fucking you gotta fight for your rights kind of thing. Um and in nineteen sixty four he published uh, a book called Merchants of Labor about the Bracero program. And and it was like it was like the jungle, you know, like when people people didn't really realize what how bad it was. They, you know, they didn't their salad. They didn't know what the fuck went on with their salad. They just fucking bought lettuce and carrots and, and onions and tomatoes. And, and they didn't really think twice of like what what the fuck, the, how that actually got to their plate. Um, well, merchants of labor kind of showed them that, hey, it was not a nice process that got to their plate. So, um, yeah, Ernesto got a, earned a really big reputation with that book. And again, it. it a lot of it came from this this Chular car crash. Car crash, bus crash, tragedy. I don't know. I, I've, I don't know what to call it, doing all my research. So anyway, here, you know, the government says, hey, Ernie, go check it out, dude. These fucking, these, these fucking farm dudes are fucking, we don't trust them. Go make sure that, that everything's on the up and up. So Ernesto gets here and immediately, I mean, this this was Salinas in 1963. This isn't Salinas in 2023. Oh, crap. This was, there's actually, is that 60 years ago? How about that? Um, so, so yeah, Salinas at the time was way different. This fucking Mexican dude from Nayarit with a fucking PhD from Colombia shows up and everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing here? I don't give a fuck. He tried to he tried to ask for the blueprints of the truck. The people that made the truck said, "Nah, you ain't gonna get it from us, buddy." And um, yeah, he he even asked her to speak with with Pancho, the the driver. And Robert Ames said, "Nah, you ain't gonna talk to my client, buddy." So so it wasn't easy for Ernesto. It wasn't easy. People were, were fucking. It wasn't easy coming from outside of Salinas and trying to get information from people of something that happened in Salinas. 
And I think anyone that is not from Salinas and has come to Salinas and had to do that knows that not a lot has changed, man. I hate to fucking admit it and I hate to laugh and I wish it would change, but I think sometimes not a lot of, not a lot has changed. Um, but he, now he was the, immediately, he was, he was the one that was like, this is interesting. Like, why why were the growers so desperate to have the funeral here in Salinas? Why did the trial you know end that way? He was like that was it. So in the trial, I think they called eight witnesses. They did not call one of the victims of or one of the survivors. They did not call one of the survivors to ask what what happened. And again, in two hours later, this this guy or Pancho is acquitted. And Nessa was the first one to be like, "I don't know about that. I don't know. I what? Why? Why did that happen so quickly?" And and it, it was, you know, and and then me, he realized. Well, part of it was that these these guys weren't from Salinas or they weren't American. And you know, he. he that was his question. He was like, I, I wonder if it would have been different, you know, if these were 32 American workers that had been killed, heads would have probably rolled, but they were they were Mexican workers. And and also he realized, like, dude, the growers depend on this program. The growers depend on on, on this pool of cheap labor. And if word gets out, there's already been talk. That they had already barely extended it for another year. They had already they were supposed to end the program in 1963. They said no, we're going to push it to December of 1964. And then it really looked like they were just going to keep doing that, you know, and, and keep doing that, and keep doing that. And I don't know for how long. Um, but then this happened. Then then Sol then Solida, then Chular happened, and and then Ernesto Galarza comes down, and he realizes like, oh, dude, this is this is an uh, exploitative program and again that that's also me that's my opinion there i i you know it, it seems pretty obvious now looking back that that these workers were getting taken advantage of and the growers were getting way more benefit out of it and were making millions and millions of dollars um but yeah ernesto galarza is, is somebody that is he's a, a a very important individual when it comes to Mexican Mexican American and workers' rights in general, and and yeah, and he he was here he was here in Salinas, and if it wasn't for him doing that, who knows who knows how the history of labor in this valley would have gone, but but he was here, he he was here, and um, and and also another thing, you know, not only did they bring. A national level attention from somebody as prominent as Ernesto Galarza. What what this crash did? This was also something else that I was like, huh, huh, really? I would have I wouldn't know about this connection. I didn't think, I didn't realize this. But anyway, like being Mexican, it to, it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense because I you know you know your history, you know your culture, um, and so at the time. Once again, 1963, that, you know, there was, you know, like I said, it was the beginning of the civil rights era. There was some organizations in California, you know, that were about Mexican-American rights, you know, specifically like one, like the community service organization was a big one. And, but, but the community service organization, like most Mexican-American organizations at the time, it was LA based. 
you know, it was from LA and it focused on, on, on issues affecting urban Mexicans, you know, city type Mexicans. And dude, this is where it's, I mean, I was like, should I bring this up or whatever? The, the, that divide, you know, that divide of city Mexican versus or rural country Mexican, whatever you want to say it literally like Salinas is such a, you, you can see it in our, in our gang culture. And, you know, as, as we, I do not like to glorify gangs or violence or anything on this podcast, and I'm definitely not doing it now. But we all know, again, the major gangs here are the Norteños and the Sureños. And if you go back in into their history, it, it really comes down to that. You know, it's uh, the city Mexicans just look down on the farming Mexicans and would pick on them and use them until the the farming Mexicans banded together. Both of those are super, super simplified versions of how those two gangs started and what they did. But, um, again, they didn't see each other as a Mexican whole. You know, it was like, no, we're a type of Mexican. You're a type of Mexican. And in 1963, that was very much, very much the case. I mean, I think that's when those gangs were being formed and stuff in the prisons. You know, in the prisons, that was going down. In the fields, this was going down. So, um, so yeah, so anyway, because of this, because of this, you know, the, the power of, of, of the Mexican community politically is diminished because it's divided. Um, and, and so, so it, it, you know, a lot of, it was hard for, for, you know, Mexican Americans to kind of have any political will or change things politically because of this, because, you know, you had the the Mexicans that worked in the fields had certain issues and the Mexicans that lived in the cities had certain issues, even though they had a common culture and, and a common, you know, familiarity, <laughs> common culture, they had a freaking common culture. And um, so, so the community service organization in 1962 their leader is this dude named Cesar Chavez. He's this young guy, you know, he's up and coming. I don't know. I don't know whatever happened about him. <laughs> but no, yeah, 1962, uh, Cesar Chavez uh, is leading the community service organization. They have their national or their, yeah, their national conference. And he says, hey, we need to make the plight of the farm worker a priority for our organization. And the organization said, nah. Or Chale, probably because they're from L.A., you know, they were like Chale homes. Um, so, so yeah, so in 1962, organization says, no, dude, what the fuck? I don't care about no freaking. Actually, you know, that's the, the term, you know, the one of the prerogative, per, the bad term, a bad word to for a Norteño, for a Northern Mexican is buster. And that's a short inversion of sod buster, because that's what the that's what the city Mexicans used to call the farming Mexicans, because well they were farmers, so they they busted sod for a living, so they would call them sod busters, and then they shortened that to buster. And the more you know, and that's your little cholo history for today. Um, so yeah, so in 1962, Cesar Chavez was like, dude, hey CSO, we got a freaking. We got to support the farm worker rights. They said, nah, dude, no thanks. And then in 1963 in September, here you have Chular. The freaking bus crash. 32 Braceros dead. And and all of a sudden, the 
the Mexicans from the cities are like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. This this program is is fucked up. This program, not only is is it taking advantage of our of of our Mexican compatriot, you know, or of our of our fellow Mexicans, but it is also being American, being Mexican, you know, also being <laughs> here. You are you're making a low wage pool of people yourselves. So like unionized American Mexicans had more trouble getting work because the Bracero program was bringing in non-unionized cheap labor. Fuck, I hope that made sense. And this is where I like having a co-host because I know how I get and I, I talk like a freaking like algebra freaking problem. But but if, if that makes sense, you know, because you got if you got these people coming fr- from Mexico, you know, and they're they're working for five bucks an hour. And I mean, it's not these aren't real numbers. These are there's like a dollar an hour. But, you know, say they're working for five bucks an hour and here your your union is fighting to get paid ten dollars an hour. Well, the, the growers are going to be well, we're going to go with these five dollar an hour people. But then you're sitting here and you're like, bro, you're getting screwed over like you think you're getting a deal, but like, look, you're getting treated terribly. And on top of that, it, it, it hurts our ability to collectively bargain. So, so anyway, so yeah, so this is where the, the, the Mexicans from the cities were like, whoa, 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 wait, we are all in this together. Like their plight is our plight. And so sure enough in 1963, like I said, when the CSO met it, met again, after uh, the Chular tragedy, they they definitely put the plight of the farm workers in their priorities, and they made that uh, uh, again a, a big target of theirs. And then, if you know your history, then you go to 1965. You got the Delano Great Boycott that goes on for five years. 1970, it ends. The workers get their victory. That's what catapults the freaking UFW and Cesar Chavez into the freaking international spotlight. The workers take took on the millionaire growers and they won. And um, and Salinas is tied right all into that. It's it's so it's so interesting. It's so interesting when you and when you again go back and continue to think about it, and and what what seemed like this event. Oh man, this was a tragic event, man. Thirty two people died. This is the deadliest uh, road accident in American history. Tragic, but then you really like start dissecting it and looking at it and like all the pieces that connect together, and you're like, holy crap. Not only this, this had national implications in, in that, again, the Bracero program, like I said, it was going to be extended for another temporarily for another year that got canceled after Chular. Um, like the, the Mexican uh, civil rights organizations got stronger and banded together. And all of a sudden you have the Delano Great Boycott in 1965. All of these dominoes start to fall after after all the, these events here in, in Chular. And again, and they're tragic events. It's, it's absolutely terrible that, that you know, they, 32 people have to die in order for all this. But like, I don't know. I, it's, this, is, this is the nucleus of, of that. And so once again, I, I, I always try to hammer this on these history episodes. And there's a big part of why I do it is that just because just because Salinas doesn't have all these 
books and movies and songs like the New Yorks and L.A.'s of the world doesn't mean that it's not an extremely interesting and important place. A lot of these events, a lot of these events that I've talked about on these episodes, the, the, the nation would be different if they didn't happen. It, 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 is, in, it is crazy. But anyway, I need a beer. <laughs> I need a beer. That's the, that's the 1963 Chular bus crash, a very, very tragic and sad day in uh, Monterey County history, but a very important day in Mexican-American civil rights history. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it, dude, you could DM me or... or Leave a if you ever you know I always post the episodes on IG I make that little one minute clip if there's something that you you want to know or or that I didn't go over something leave it on leave a comment there ask me I might know I might not know I don't know I'll, I'm I'm curious I know people like these I like these too but like I said I'm gonna go XL I'm gonna go have a beer I'm gonna chill out I hope you all liked that episode or I hope you enjoyed it I hope it wasn't too sad. Next one, I, I will. I promise, I will find a, a cheerier topic next time. And until next time, we'll see ya. Peace.